0: With the new president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, rapidly moving to adopt climate policies, uh, the oil and gas industry have expressed frustration at the potential losses uh, the industry would have to suffer on top of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, with uh, European oil companies opting for a different approach to the current global green initiative, It does appear uh, it won't be long before American companies would be uh, forced to change their stance. So to give us more analysis on the future of the oil industry in the post-pandemic era, we're pleased to be joined on the line by Professor James Coleman, an energy law professor at Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law. Hello.
1: Hi, it's great to talk with
0: you. Thank you for joining us, Professor. So, uh, we know about the efforts to uh, readdress uh, climate change now that the Trump administration is out of power. President Biden making it clear that uh, this is going to be one of his main priorities. Uh, before we get into more specifics, could you tell us your overall prospects for the oil industry under the new Biden administration?
1: Well, as ever, I think a lot will depend on the price of oil and gas and on market dynamics that aren't controlled by any one president. Mm. But it is true that the oil and gas industry has a lot to be worried about in the United States because of some of the steps that President Biden has promised to take on oil and gas. Of course, it's also important to understand that a lot of oil and gas development is controlled by state regulation and state policy that might not be controlled by the national government. But to the extent that they're dealing with national policymakers, uh, I, I think they certainly expect less friendly regulation than they received under the Trump administration.
0: Right, and, and that's an important point because um, the uh, leader, the political leadership in, Tokyo, uh, in Texas certainly has a different philosophical outlook uh, than, let's say, the federal government uh, would in Washington, D.C. But if you look at what's happening in Europe, it, it appears that they have, at least uh, on the surface, um, decided to be cooperative. They've pledged to cut greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by the year 2050. Um, we don't see similar pledges coming on the uh, American side of things. I, I understand there are different governing structures and different um, maybe cultural and social uh, pressures uh, at play here. Uh, but how, how would we explain generally the different stances that the European oil companies are taking versus, let's say, Chevron or ExxonMobil?
1: Well, you know, I think that the important thing is always to look at what companies plan to do in the next few years. So, you know, just as President Biden has said that he wants to get to net zero emissions from the electricity sector by 2035. But again, by 2035, he won't be the president. And so I think that often it makes a lot more sense to pay attention to commitments for the next you know, 10 years or really five years when you're looking at both those oil and gas companies and the federal government. When you look at the difference between the European oil and gas companies and the American oil and gas companies, I mean, one way to say is that, well, that disconnect looks concerning for the American companies. On the other hand, if, it, if the European companies are sincere in their intentions to move away from oil and gas, of course that's a big market opportunity for whatever companies remain in that industry. So it may be you know, a case of you know, healthy uh, diversification, in the oil industry moving forward.
0: Let's talk about one of the, uh, I guess, initial executive actions that have uh, had some effect uh, with the new Biden administration, Professor. Uh, The move to block the $9 billion Keystone XL project, uh, this was considered significant in terms of the environmental aspects of it. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, there is a Canadian side involved with this because this would run through uh, the border. And this Canadian company, uh, TC Energy Corp., uh, they... um, perhaps are considering litigation in this case, I understand that in another interview you gave that uh, you say that they might pursue a suit but it would not be a uh, smart choice. Outside of the United States, Professor, we normally think of Canada as being this kind of uh, green, friendly, kind of very liberal, progressive nation. But obviously, uh, Canadian firms have a different uh, profit motive here. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by the legal strategy that could be pursued by uh, TC Energy?
1: Yes, so they could bring a claim under the North American Free Trade Agreement, which Protects investors in you know in these in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. They're investing in the other country. They're protected from a discrimination or expropriation. In other words, just taking somebody's assets. And mm-hmm. so, uh, TC Energy would be allowed to bring a claim into arbitration under NAFTA. Now, it's very hard to win those claims. Usually, uh, usually you don't win those claims. But TC Energy has some plausible claims because. If you look at the way that they, that, that investment has been treated over time, over the 13 years that it's been under review since 2008, I think it's fair to say that they've at times received discriminatory treatment from the United States. And so if they were able to prove that claim, they would potentially be able to, uh, to win money. I mean, they asked for $15 billion the last time they brought this claim. I imagine if they bring that claim again, they would potentially ask for more. And certainly the perspective of Canada on this pipeline is that the environmental review of this project that was done mostly under the Obama administration Suggested that the project would, if anything, reduce greenhouse gas emissions because it was a more efficient way to transport oil, uh, and so I think they would point to that and say, "Well, there's not really environmental concerns here. This is, uh, you know, this is some kind of a uh, protectionist or discriminatory action."
0: Now, in terms of the overall uh, outlook for these uh, oil companies, this is maybe not so much a legal question as it is a strategic uh, corporate question. With big tobacco, we know that uh, since um, pretty much now there is a widespread consensus that smoking is bad for you and you shouldn't smoke at all, Uh, a lot of these tobacco companies have shifted uh, to selling, let's say, chewing tobaccos like Snooze or um, moving into electronic cigarettes in a big way. Do the oil companies similarly have that kind of a uh, a nimbleness or or strategic uh, ability to be able to shift into the renewable sectors uh, with their, uh, um, I guess, existing domain expertise?
1: yeah i think they they definitely have the ability to shift and they they have a fundamental advantage over tobacco companies which is that you know tobacco disappeared from the world tomorrow nobody would really uh be worse off i mean Mm -hmm. certainly smokers wouldn't appreciate it for a while but but um oil of course we you need and are going to need in the future i think all projections suggest we're going to still be consuming a lot of oil in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and the you know same is true of natural gas as well. And you know there are also ways where even if we get to net zero emissions, we could do that still using some oil and gas. Not to mention all the oil and gas that is used for um, for plastics and for basically development of right. all the industrial things that we manufacture. And so I think that uh, people expect the oil and gas to have a much much longer sort of run out in its usefulness but if your question is about you know potential liability for some of the downsides of oil and gas i think there's no doubt that the oil and gas companies you know remain concerned about that and remain concerned about some of the precedents that we've seen in terms of previous cases of you know tobacco companies or other companies being sued for some of the downsides of their products
0: we have about a minute left. I just want to get your thoughts on, you, you mentioned a lot of these factors are external in terms of uh, the demand and the price of oil. Uh, generally, it's been known that um, basically it's uh, up to Saudi Arabia and OPEC. If they want to keep supply high and prices low, shale companies in the U.S. Uh, are kind of squeezed with profits. What, what's your outlook now for the uh, demand for oil uh, post-pandemic?
1: Well, that's a, that is a huge question. And I think anybody that had a a clear answer to that would be a billionaire over the next <laughs> couple months. Because there's really, you know, when we when we've seen big changes to demand, big drop-offs in demand, like during the global financial crisis uh, or otherwise, a lot of times there's been predictions. Well, that's you know, oil production or oil demand will never recover, and often it recovers even faster because. Cheap oil and gas cause people uh, to consume more. You know, will that same thing happen again coming out of the pandemic? I think it's very uncertain. And if you look at the confidence intervals that traders use when they're trying to hedge their risk on oil and gas prices in the coming years, there's a very wide interval from, you know, prices doubling to prices being uh, cut in half. And from uh, demand, you know, returning pretty quickly to its pre-pandemic, uh, amount or uh, staying low for years to come. So I think there is just tremendous uncertainty, which is one thing that investors in oil and gas are worried about every day.
0: Right. Uh, and that uncertainty uh, certainly uh, reflected in uh, uh, how, uh, I guess, a lot of companies now are still not uh, making that uh, final decision to really aggressively uh, go one way or the other. Professor Coleman, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate your insights and uh, hopefully can talk to you again soon.
1: All right. Thank you so much.
0: That was Professor James Coleman from Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law. We're going to move on to the second hour of the program after another check of traffic and weather.